chapter 19 is where we're going to uh, pick up. We're going to pick up in 1945 and go to uh, cha- go into chapter 20. Before we get there, I was reading a story about a man by the name of Bill um, Bill Klein. I'm sorry, Bill Clem, and he was really a, a rather well-known and powerful uh, umpire in Major League Baseball. And uh, in one particular important game, tied game, ninth inning, um, batter hits a line drive out into left field, guy on third is running home, um, potentially to score the, the winning run, left fielder picks up the ball, throws it to a to home plate, runner, catcher, umpire, all collide in one catastrophic um, collision, and they're sprawled out all over the um, all over the field there around home plate, and naturally, from one dugout, what you're hearing is, he's safe, he's safe. Of course, from the other dugout, oh no, he's out, he's out. From the stands, they're going crazy and they're yelling all sorts of things. He's out, he's safe. And all, nobody can agree on whether he's out or safe. And uh, Bill Clem stands up, shakes his fist at the crowd and proclaims with all authority, he ain't nothing until I've called it. In other words, I'm the authority on this field. And if he's out or if he's safe, he will be because I declare it and you will submit to my call. I'm the authority on the field. And so today we are going to look as Jesus enters into the temple in Jerusalem and declares he is the authority. He is the one in charge. He is the one who calls it. He makes... There is no subtlety about the call that he makes. I am the Lord of the temple. I am the Lord of all. And he makes it abundantly clear. So, as we look and continue our series in in the Gospel of Luke, we are... We've, we saw last week with the, what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus has entered uh, or reached Jerusalem. That means the travel narrative is over for the next period of time that we're in the Gospel of Luke. The majority of time Jesus is in Jerusalem. We're going to be dealing with the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, these events take place on Monday or Tuesday. I won't get into the debate this morning as to whether or not it was Monday or Tuesday. Um, but it is the last week of his life. And this four chapters is going to be dealing with the last week and specifically the crucifixion, resurrection, and uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ um, in the Gospel of Luke. And so he enters into Jerusalem. We're going to see him now spending time teaching in the temple. Um, And as he's teaching, he's going to encounter a series of confrontations. Not everybody's going to be thrilled with his teaching. And I want you to lay aside... Any false idea of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There are places where Jesus is gentle and kind and smooth. And then there are times where Jesus is, you ain't nothing till I called it. 
And I'm calling it, I'm telling you the way things are. Let me give you a quick preview of where I hope to go today. And then we'll, we'll read our text and see what God might show us. Um, we get into the very well-known passive text where Jesus cleanses the temple. That is, he tosses over and, and drives out the money changers and the sellers of merchandise. But I want us to understand that this, we're going to deal with this uh, in, in two categories, authority and priority. We're going to see Jesus as the authority, but we're also going to see what Jesus deems as the priority. What's most important? As he comes into Jerusalem during Passover week, um, what is most important? What is the priority as he enters in? So we're going to look at those two things, authority and priority. We're also going to see Jesus address the first of three questions um, uh, presented to him by the religious authorities. Basically, they're going to gang up on him, and they're going to, in chapter 20, they're going to gang up on him and ask him a series of questions. They're going to try to trap him. We're going to look at the, very, the first of those questions um, today, and I don't think I'd be giving anything away if I say that um, they don't trap him. In fact, Jesus turns the tables on them, and they end up the ones who are condemned. Um, like I said, I don't think I'm giving anything away by letting that out of the bag. But we're going to see the first of uh, those three questions. And ultimately, at the heart of this is who has the authority to lead God's people? Who has the authority to lead God's people? Jesus is going to assert that I have the authority to lead God's people. And he makes those statements and he displays actions that assert, I am the authority. However, again, not everybody's thrilled with that, so they are going to seek to discredit that claim. So how Jesus comes in, uh, claims to be the authority. We don't want him to be the authority. And so therefore, we need to discredit him. And that's where we're going to be going today and pretty much where we're going to be going um, for the next few weeks. Are you with me? All right, then let's look. At, uh, follow along with me as we read um, in Luke chapter 9, 19, verses 45 through chapter 20, verse 8. Listen to the word of God. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or, who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And as they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Well, we saw that Jesus enters into... Uh, the temple, and I don't know how uh, how clear uh, that um, 
my diagrams are here, but or my maps here. But he enters into the temple, and he comes into the east side, which is right here. This is north. I want you to note this, this fortress of Antino- Antonia right here. This is where all the, uh, the civil leaders, the powerful Herod and Pilate and the, the, all the big sh- Roman big shots were. But he comes into this east, eastern gate right here because he came down from the Mount of Olives. And out here is the court of the Gentiles. And inside here we have like the court of women and then a little bit closer the court of the Israelites and it gets closer and closer to the... Uh, um, uh, as you draw closer, you get closer and closer to God. You can kind of see a little different schematic down here. East side, court of the Gentiles, court of women, court of the Israelites. This is the court of men, basically. Um, the altar, the brazen altar, and then the holy, of hol- the holy place and the holy of holies. So Jesus enters into this temple complex, and we believe that he came into this court of the Gentiles, this outer court here. And this is important because what he finds as he enters in is not a sanctuary, but a circus. He comes into the place of worship, and he expects, rightfully so, to see God being honored and glorified, and instead what he finds is a greed and avarice and, and idolatry. I, I think what's interesting here is that we're going to see Jesus basically turn over all of the tables of those who are selling. But before we, we, we deal with that, I do find it interesting how Jesus goes here to the court of the Gentiles. He does not go over to the fortress of Antonia where the civil leaders go or where the civil leaders are. In other words, Jesus does not go and upset or attack pagan Ro- Roman paganism. He does not go and attack idolatrous Rome. Let me tell you, Rome was an oppressive government. Rome was a place that abused its citizens. He doesn't go there. The people wanted him to go there. The people wanted him to topple Rome. After all, here comes a guy who we have seen him heal a blind man. We have seen him raise the dead. We have seen him calm the seas. Here is a guy, if anybody can overthrow Rome, this is the guy and he does not go there. This tells us something about the priority of Jesus. What are his priorities? His priorities are not to establish a perfect civil government, but his priorities seem to be focused on the worship of his people. Here is a man who can raise the dead. Here is a man who can calm the sea. Here is a man who can suppress Roman oppression with his word. But he fixes the attention on that which superficially represented the worship of Yahweh. Folks, this should be a lesson to us. He is less concerned with people's relationship with Rome than he is with people's relationship to God. Rome is not my concern. Civil authorities are not my concern. My concern is your relationship with the Holy God. And so he enters into this temple complex and what he sees, he sees greed, he sees avarice, he sees idolatries, he he sees barriers to worship because this was, we believe, in the court of the Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles would come to worship. They were on the outskirts looking in. 
They were already seen as outsiders. And then it was made even more difficult as um, the Jewish leaders set up booths for selling sacrificial animals and for exchanging money. And can you imagine the stench of the temple? of the holy temple of God, and you have all of these animals and all of these people milling about. And the Gentiles certainly can't worship in a place like that or certainly would find it difficult to worship in a place like that. Jewish leadership is taking advantage of the worshipers here. This was just a place of idolatrous and greed. Because after all, people would travel and they would need a sacrifice. And personally, I don't think that my thought is not that Jesus is upset that people are selling sacrificial animals. A fine convenience. After all, if you were traveling great distance, it might be difficult to bring animals with you to sacrifice. So a service was provided. But the issue was this. They were ripping people off. If you did bring your animal, I guarantee you, your animal would not be accepted. Yeah, there's a flaw. This animal's not perfect. However, I got a friend over here who just, by the way, happens to have a perfect animal for you. So why don't you go visit my buddy? I know a guy. And he can sell you the perfect animal. And not only that, but they had to pay a temple tax. And so they had to exchange money. Do you think they exchanged money at a fair rate? Absolutely not. This is like when you travel overseas. If you exchange your money at the airport, you're going to get dinged really hard. You need to go to the bank. Or some other place where you can exchange your money. No, they were charging people a fortune. In other words, They were taking advantage of people. Jesus expects to find worship, a place of prayer. And instead, the people are being taken advantage of. They are making merchandise of God. And they were hindering sincere worship. You can't worship in an environment like that. I find it interesting because in John chapter 2, Jesus enters into the temple and he drives everybody, he drives the money changers and the um, merchandisers out. And now here it is, three years later, and he does the exact same thing. I believe that in John, it's at the very beginning of his ministry. And here in Luke and in Matthew and in Mark, it's at the very end of his ministry. I put that together and say, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. But I find it interesting because he, at the very beginning of his ministry, he, he enters into the temple, cleanses it, casts everybody out, and here he is three years later and nothing has changed. Three years later, after doing that, after performing miracles for the next three years and teaching and proclaiming the gospel and raising the dead and calming the sea, three years later, not one thing has changed. The people are still making merchandise of a holy God. And so, it says, he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
In other words, the purpose of the temple should have been for like should have been for that publican who said came into the temple and prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was its purpose. Instead, there is no room for a guy like you. Get out. I got business to do. I got to make money off of God. I've got to take advantage of you so that I can make a profit off of things that are holy. Jesus drives them out. The purpose of the temple has been flipped upside down instead of being a place of God or the place of making merchandise of God. And Jesus then quotes two passages of Scripture. The first passage of Scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. What this is referring to is a time where God was saying, Gentiles, people who are not of Jewish heritage, will come into my house. These, these, these Gentiles, these outcasts, there will come a time I'm going to bring these outcasts into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And I will accept their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. Why? Because my house should be a house of prayer for all the people. And this is exactly what's going on here. This is a place where all of the nations would be able to come and worship. We see uh, another reference to this also in Isaiah, chapter Isaiah, chapter 2, verses uh, 2 through 4. We read this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. In other words, it will come about that there will come a day where the nations will say, Come, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us learn of God. Let us learn what, what God has to say. And Jesus comes into his temple and instead of learning about God, he is just being bought and sold like cheap trinkets. We should note the sanctuary of God, that the temple of God should be a place of prayer. Prayer is the essence of worship. This is one of the reasons why we have multiple times of prayer in this church. We have times of prayer at 8, eight o'clock. We would invite you to come and join us in prayer. And then during our formal worship service, we have multiple times of prayer. Times where we pray and give adoration and praise to God. Times where we pray and give thanksgiving to God. Times where we pray and confess our sins. And times where we rejoice in the great things that God has done. Times of prayer where we're just praying for and making supplication for the various needs that God has put upon our hearts. The temple of God, the house of God, should be a house of prayer. This is a place where we can come and we can lift up our prayers. 
to a holy and righteous God. I believe prayer is an, one of the very essential elements of worship. Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have brought your filth into my place. You brought filth into my house. And then he combines it with this passage from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where he says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Folks, this comes from perhaps Jeremiah's most cutting sermon, perhaps one of his most forceful sermons, which is saying something. Because if you've read Jeremiah, he's pretty forceful all the time. Most of his sermons are pretty biting most of the time. I would say Jeremiah's sermon in chapter 17 may be one of his most forceful, but this is what's going on. The people are worshiping Baals and they are committing adultery and they are committing robbery and they are, dist- they are committing sin of every imaginable type. And then... They walk into the temple of the Lord and say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here, God, here's my sacrifice. Aren't I great? Aren't I holy? Shouldn't you just be so enamored with how wonderful I am bringing this beautiful sacrifice into your house? This is where Jeremiah is saying, are you joking me? Are you kidding me? You are wicked, outwardly and inwardly wicked and corrupt, and then you show up and you think that somehow you're going through the motions is going to please God? No, you've turned it into a robber's den. You have turned my temple into a place, a gathering place for criminals. It is a place where the rebellious display themselves as righteous. And here we see God God in Jesus despising those who pervert worship and especially, especially that which exploits others for personal gain. So Jesus comes in, tosses out, kicks out these merchandisers and tells them this is to be a place of worship, but you've made it a den of thieves. You have perverted the very purpose for which this temple exists. And so this is where we are. And then we encounter, as he is teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, the principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him. In other words, there is a conspiracy going on. As Jesus is doing this, the the chief priests, the leaders of the people want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. I think by the way this is phrased, they have already made up their minds. They want to destroy him. They're not contemplating, oh, I wonder what can we do? No, we, we are going to get rid of him. We're going to get rid of him one way or another. Their first attempt is they're going to try to discredit him. They're going to ask him some tricky questions. Well, tricky to us. Um, they're going to ask him some trick questions. And seek to stumble him. And if that succeeds, then they can go and discredit Jesus and eliminate him and say he's not worth listening to. Of course, that's going to fail, so they're left with one option, and that's to put him on a cross. And so there's this conspiracy. But think about this. Jesus is now in the temple, and he's teaching. And in chapter 20, verse 1, he says he's teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Matthew tells us that he's actually healing the sick. 
So in the midst of all of this, there's a conspiracy to kill him. There is this vile merchandising of God going on, and yet Jesus maintains his teaching ministry and he's, he's sharing the gospel. So even in the midst of all of this, we cannot miss the compassion of Christ to make sure that the gospel is declared and that those who desire to hear the gospel are not deprived. I should note that the gospel is compassionate. Here we see Jesus' compassion. He just doesn't throw everybody out and then say, I'm leaving this place and I'm not coming back until you get it right. He kicks them out and then he begins to teach the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. So the people are on, on the lookout as an excuse to remove Jesus. I find it interesting, despite how powerful these leaders are, despite the influence they have, despite their power and their authority, they cannot get rid of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus, the only way they can get rid of Jesus is by Jesus willingly laying down his life. He is in complete control. So that's kind of the background. That's what's going on. Jesus enters the temple, kicks everybody out because they've made merchandise of God. Um, and uh, he continues to teach and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in the midst of all of these things. Meanwhile, there is a conspiracy to destroy him. And here now we will come to the first instance of the people, of the, of the leaders trying to destroy him. And this is when they ask him, by what authority, by whose authority do you do these things? By whose authority? And I'm going to assume that the these things have, more to, have mostly to do with, uh, by whose authority do you kick everybody out of the temple? By whose authority do you kick out of the merchandise? It's, I find it, don't you find it interesting? He doesn't care about the, they don't ask about the propriety. It's like, you know, that's kind of rude what you did. Or you messed everything up. No, they're asking, by whose authority? By what authority did you do these things? Because if you have the authority, it's an appropriate action. I want you to know it's a trap. This is not a sincere request for information. They're not going, well, gee, I'd like to know. If you're the Messiah, then we would like to know. And then we can join in and join you within your mission. The question here is, who are you, Jesus, and how is God to be worshipped? Because Jesus has claimed authority. Jesus has claimed, this is my house. This is my house. And it is not a place of merchandise. It is a place of worship. It is a place of prayer. It belongs to me. I'm the Lord of this temple. And they're saying, really? Are you the Lord? of this temple. How is God to be worshipped? This shouldn't catch anybody by surprise. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry to up till now, Jesus has been claiming authority. He has claimed authority over life. He's claimed authority over death. He's claimed authority over heaven and hell, sickness. He's claimed authority over nature. He's claimed authority over sin. And now he makes a claim, an authoritative claim over worship by saying, I'm the authority of the temple. This belongs to me. I have authority over heaven and earth. I have authority over life and death. I have authority over the wind and the waves. 
I have authority over all things. I have authority over this temple. It is mine. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm the Lord of this temple. And they're asking him, by what authority do you do these things? Are you kidding? I have the authority to raise the dead. I have the authority to forgive sins. And you're saying, do I have authority over this temple? That's what you're asking me. Let me quickly state, Jesus claims all authority. And when Jesus claims all authority, let's not leave out the fact that Jesus makes a claim of authority over our lives as well. There is nowhere in the universe where Jesus does not say, it is mine. All things are mine including you. You were created by him, Colossians says, and you were created for him. Now, you may not serve him, but that does not release his claim of authority on you. You may reject him. You may say he doesn't even exist, but that does not absolve his claim of authority on you. He's still the boss. He is still the owner of you. The question is this. Will you say, yes, Lord, you have authority over my life, or will you continue to shake your fist and try to entrap him and try to destroy him? That's our question. Jesus has made his claim. When we are confronted by Jesus, he makes an absolute claim on us. So the question to us is how should we respond? How are you going to respond to the claim that Jesus says, I have all authority? That means I have authority over you. And he has authority over you because he made you. He created you. All things came into being by him and through him. All things. That includes you. And therefore, he is the boss of you. Some people say, who died and made you boss? Yeah, um, Jesus. <laughs> By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right? I suppose Jesus could have said, I, my right comes from heaven. The authority comes from heaven. My authority comes from God. My authority comes from me, or whatever. Jesus is much wiser. And so... He asked them a question, a counter question. And I want you to know that Jesus is not being evasive when he asks this counter question. This was a very common rabbinic method of, of teaching, a common rabbinic, rabbinic uh, method of, of asking and answering questions. So um, he answers with a counter question. And basically he says this, if you can answer the question that I propose to you, you will answer your own question. So John's baptism, where did it come from? So I want to ask you a question. You want to know by whose authority I did this? I'm going to ask you a question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Because if you answer that question, you'll answer your question. This is where Jesus is going. He's not evading it. He's going to bring them. He's going to draw them in to a conclusion. He's going to draw them into the correct answer. He's going to draw them into a place where they must give the right answer or they must utterly deny what they know is true. Jesus is brilliant. 
John's baptism, was it from God or not? That's what I want to know. I'll answer your, if you answer that question, you'll know the answer to your own question that you ask of me. John's baptism, was it of God or was it from man? What was it? Well, let's think about what was John's ministry? John's ministry, what was it? It was, he says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, making ready the way for the Messiah. John always pointed to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here comes the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here is the beloved Son. He is the one who will increase and I must decrease. He is the Messiah, the coming one. Not me. John's ministry never pointed to himself. John's ministry always pointed to Jesus Christ. John's baptism was it from man or God. Because if you're going to say it is from heaven, you need to understand that John always pointed to me. John called Israel's, including Israel's leaders, to repent in light of the coming of Jesus. What did he do? I'm baptizing you, a baptism of repentance. He called the leaders of Israel to be baptized in light of the coming Messiah. John's baptism. Was it from heaven? Or not? Because if it's from heaven, John pointed to me and he called you to repent in light of my coming, including you leaders. I find it interesting. John the Baptist is dead at this point and he is still acting as the forerunner to Jesus. He is still testifying of the one who is to come. John's ministry isn't over. It's going on. Because here's the thing. If you say that John's baptism is from heaven, if his ministry is from heaven, you must believe in the one to whom John bore witness. See how Jesus just turned the tables on him? See, if Jesus just says, well, it's from God, people would say, oh, look at that, he's a blasphemer. John's baptism. Is it from men or from God? And so what do they do? They get into a debate with one another. And they begin to consider the options. Hmm, Well, if we say it's um, from heaven, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you listen to him? But if we say it's from men, then the people will stone us because they thought John was from heaven. And I don't know. What do we do? So they begin to consider the options. They did not accept John's baptism. They did not accept John's ministry. They give lip service simply to appease the crowd. They're just politicians. They give lip service to appease the crowd. And in the end, they answer, we don't know. We have no idea. John's back. I have, no, I don't know. Jesus' point, you are the leaders of, you leaders are to, Bear the nation's religious authority. You are the ones who are to have theological discernment. And you have demonstrated, by saying, I don't know, you have demonstrated that you are not equipped to lead God's people. If you can't determine if John is from heaven or not, you have no claim on God's people. You have no business leading them. If you can't make this simple discernment, and you can't do this very simple thing, was John from heaven or not, If you can't do that, how are you going to lead God's people? And if you can't make that decision, how can you make a decision regarding me? The leaders are to bear 
the nation's religious authority. They are the ones who should have had theological discernment, but instead they are blind to what is utterly and completely clear. In other words, as we read in the Gospel of John, light has come into the world, but men love the darkness. Satan has blinded their eyes, and they cannot see what is utterly and completely clear. And therefore, Jesus is saying, you have no authority whatsoever to lead God's people. How dare you think that you can lead God's people when you don't even know simple questions. And so they sought to condemn Jesus, but instead all they've done is condemn themselves. They've demonstrated that they are completely ill-equipped to do what they should be doing, what their position calls them to do. And so they sought to condemn Jesus. They sought to discredit Jesus. Instead, all they have done is discredited themselves. Jesus says, my temple, my temple. And if you can't discern between earthly things and heavenly things, who are you to be leading God's people? And so then Jesus says, and so therefore neither will I. If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. You don't know the answer. Even if I do tell you, you're so blind you wouldn't know. In other words, I will not cast pearls before swine. And I will not answer your question. I guess I'll just conclude with this. In this text, we see that Jesus comes to upset vain and worthless worship. Jesus comes to upset vain and worthless worship. He wants to reorient worship so that it exalts God. I know it's common today to make sure that worship services are, quote, entertaining. I have seen circuses, literally, big tops and elephants in church services for the purpose of being relevant, I guess. It's important that when we gather together that we we worship and exalt God, that our hearts are pointed and directed towards the exaltation of God, of God alone. So I guess we're not at least in, this, in, in our worship services, at least the hour or hour and a half that we meet, we are very deliberate about what we do. But the purpose is that I pray our heart, our desire, is that everything we do exalts God. Not me, not man, not you. In fact, our purpose is not even pri- primarily evangelistic. People will say, oh no, you need to be evangelistic. No, because that makes the congregation our priority. God is our priority. I think evangelism will take place. We should hear the gospel, which by the way, if you haven't heard the gospel, let me explain it to you. There is a God who created all things. All things have been made by him, including you, and you are... You are accountable to that God. But sin, we have all rebelled against God. We have turned away from Him. We have said no to Him. That's called sin. And because of sin, we have been separated from God. And the wages of sin is death. 
God has a plan. He says, I'll tell you what, I can reunite us together. And I can reunite you through the person of Jesus Christ who will die. He will pay the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus will bear that wage. He will pay that wage. He will die in your place. And he will impart to you his righteousness. So you will be sinless and righteous before a holy God. And if you will believe that by faith, you will be mine. I will, I will join you together with my son. And all, as we studied this morning, all the benefits of heaven will flow to you through my son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the gospel. There is God. There is sin. There is Jesus. And now you're called to respond. So I pray that we would reorient ourselves and we would always exalt God, but not only here while we're gathered in this church building, but we are, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church of God is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so are you the temple. The Bible says that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we should exalt God in our worship. When um, God comes into our lives, folks, I don't know where we get this idea that Jesus is a gentleman. Man, when Jesus entered my life, he kicked all sorts of stuff out. And it wasn't always gentle. Oh, please, would you take this nasty old filthy rag and um, drop it outside? No! That was my response. Yeah, I'm taking it, I'm throwing it out. And I'm tipping over every table and every altar in your life, and I'm destroying it and crushing it. Jesus has come to upset vain and worthless worship. Let our lives be lives of worship, not vain and worthless worship, but worship that honors and glorifies God. I should also note that Jesus did not come and clean up the center of governmental power. I love this country. I love the fact that we live in a society where we can actually participate in the government. Jesus didn't have that option. They did not live in a place where they could actually participate in the government. We do. We are blessed in that. And and I believe that we should be part of that. But I just want you to know something, folks. I say this often. I just see too many of my Christian friends just so involved in politics to the point that they neglect the gospel truth. Dr. Simone was reading to me one of my former one of our former pastors. Everything he does is about the glory of Trump and the heresy of Obama. And you may believe that, but I'm just saying Jesus didn't come and if Jesus were to come, I don't know what would happen if Jesus would come today, but I don't think he'd go to Washington, DC. And I don't think he'd go to the UN, but he would come to his churches. He would come into our midst. And say, is my play, is this a house of prayer or is it a den of thieves? Washington is corrupt. The UN is corrupt. These are we can pray that salvation will come. We can seek to have good laws, but judgment begins at the house of the Lord. So I hope you understand some balance there. I pray that whatever we do, the gospel needs to be front and center in our lives. Because Jesus didn't come to clean up government. He did not reunite people with Rome. And he did not reunite Rome with 
God. He reunited sinners back to God. And then finally, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority is mine. Folks, this whole passage is about authority. Who has the authority? Jesus said, all authority is mine. As I explained earlier, Jesus said, I got authority over life and death. I got authority over wind and waves. I've got authority over demons in hell, and I got authority over angels in heaven. Don't you know I can call forth a legion of angels, and they will come and deliver? Don't you know I can do that? And don't you know I can cast out a host of demonic oppressors? I have authority to, to, do, to do those things, and I have authority over your life. All authority is mine. Now, so as we come today, I pray that we would take a look this week at our worship. Not just what we do here on Sunday morning, that should be included. But how do we worship God? How are you going to worship the Lord tomorrow morning? When work comes and presses down on you, when you're frustrated... when you're stressed and things aren't going your way, or when God blesses you abundantly, will you still offer him worship? Pure, undefiled worship. I pray that maybe we can be a little introspective this week and say, Lord, let judgment begin with me. Judge me, Lord. Show me my life. Because you have all authority in heaven and earth. And I... And you have authority over me. So be the boss and lead me. And I pray, Lord, that I would say yes to all that you ask me to do. Let's stand and let's pray.